We're sponsored by the American College of Physicians. ACP is inviting you to attend their free four-part webinar series, Telemedicine 201. Episode one will focus on video visits beyond the simple cases. It premieres September 28th. Register today at acponline.org forward slash telemedicine 201. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, we've done it again. <laughs> we sure have, Matt. I feel like we start every episode in this exact same way. And you know what? I'm here for it. I think that's comforting to the audience. Uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll also be comforted to know that we're talking about pulmonary hypertension tonight with a focus on CTEF, which I don't think I fully understood before really going through things to prepare for this episode. Our guest is Dr. Estefania Oliveros. And a reminder to the audience that this episode and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health Continuing Education for free at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And Paul, I know you're going to tell them about our wonderful guest and our super producer co-host, but first, can you remind them in general, what do we do on this show? In general, Matt, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you mentioned, we have a super producer and newly minted physician, Dr. Deb Gorth, who has produced this episode and put it together with our guest, Dr. Estefania Oliveros. And we're going to hear, as you say, all about pulmonary hypertension with a little bit of a focus on CTEF, which I, like you, found a little bit bewildering prior to hearing all about it tonight. So for you all to know at home, Dr. Oliveros is an advanced heart failure cardiologist and a clinician researcher specializing in right-sided heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, and CTEF. She practices in Philadelphia. Dr. Oliveros earned her medical degree in Venezuela. After graduating, she completed a research fellowship at the Mayo Clinic before residency at Temple University Hospital and moved to Rush University Medical Center for her cardiology fellowship. Finally, she completed her heart failure fellowship at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And so without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Oliveros. Well, Estefania, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to talk some pulmonary hypertension, but first, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and any hobby or interest you wanted them to know about, something you do outside of medicine, to remind them that you're a person that does other things. Um, hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I'm one of the heart failure cardiologists at Temple University. I love to paint, and that's what I do with my free time, a lot of watercolor. <laughs> That sounds wonderful. I, Paul, you do you paint? I, I could see you being like a, a, a secret painter that you've just never mentioned on air before. No, no, I have no creative um, impulses whatsoever. So <laughs> an appreciator, but I can't actually come up with anything on my own. <laughs> okay. So along those it lines- It was a shot uh, in the dark, Paul. <laughs> it, was a, it was a weird, it was a weird guess, um, which was incorrect. Um but along those lines, as someone who can't create things but likes um, enjoying somebody else's creative output, the smooth transition, five years we've been doing this. Can you give me a book recommendation? What what book? Um, I, I've actually managed to carve my way through a lot of the recommendations on the show, so now give me something new that I should read. 
I just read uh, The Daughter of Fortune by Isabel Allende. Um, she's an author from Chile. It's a beautiful written uh, novel, if you are into that type of stuff. I like beautiful novels. That sounds <laughs> that's right up my alley. <laughs> it's a beautiful novel. Yeah, no, it really is. Um, I had stopped reading in Spanish for like the past like three years or so. And I did that just to test myself. <laughs> and it was wonderful. I felt so good. And you said Daughters of Fortune? Yep. Mm-hmm. Excellent. The Daughter of Fortune. Oh, Daughter yeah. of Fortune. Thank you. So you've obviously succeeded a lot to get where you are. But one of our favorite questions is, what is your favorite failure during your career? And then what did you learn from it? Um, I guess uh, one of the things at the beginning when I, I, I started was that I didn't get it together to get all my, like, the steps in. Um, I was very young when I finished medical school. So it took me a while to decide that I didn't want to do full-on research, uh, but actually clinical stuff. So I spent like two or three years trying to find my way. But in that, I also learned a lot of how to do research. So it was like a, a plus, but it took me a while. And then I'm going to just jump into this next one. You know, as a learner and a new intern, um, I'd like to know what is the best advice that you have ever received as a learner or a teacher or during your career? I could use some advice. <laughs> Um, I think intern year is super hard. So kudos to you for like, you know, enduring all of that. I'm sure you're going to be great. I think one of the things that someone told me when I was an intern was like learn to identify the sick people. And I think people take that for granted, but that's a skill that you develop. And then um, as you continue to advance, you have to, I guess, like focus on like how you learn because it will modify how you learn as an adult learner. If you're a visual or like you like to learn by teaching others so you can keep growing and honing on those skills. So when you are like ready to go and become a, like a full on internist, you can learn how to teach and how to continue learning because it never stops really. Fantastic. You've given us a book recommendation. I wanted to see, Deb, did you want to share a book recommendation as well with the audience? Yeah. And so I one of my goals is to not give up reading during intern year. And so I'm a month in and I haven't done that yet. Um, so my first book that I finished was Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe. Um, it's kind of about the sectarian violence in Northern Ireland. And as someone who kind of came up post 9-11. I think we have a very specific view of what, what terrorism is in the the global geopolitical situation. And I, I just hadn't been exposed to sort of the, the conflict in Ireland as thoroughly because it just it wasn't on the news when I was realizing what the news was. Sure. Paul Williams, do you have a pick of the week? Yeah, sure. I mean, always. I'm just, I'm just waiting for you to ask me, buddy. Um, I'm going to recommend the <laughs> the 2021 movie Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk. It is, it is far from a masterpiece, but I enjoyed it very much. It hit me at the right time. So, I've been a huge fan of Odenkirk since um, Mr. Show with Bob and David back in the '90s, and he's always been this avatar of like just barely simmering rage, which actually works well in this particular movie as this sort of everyday guy who lives through a home invasion and then kind of gets set off. And then as things unspool and unfold, he ends up sort of involved in a fight with the Russian mafia. 
and just sort of he turns out this everyday schmuck to someone who um <laughs> listen, I'm trying not to ruin it for you, but there's there's a lot of shooting and fighting and, and broken bones and stuff, which if that's up your alley, it's spectacular watching Bob Odenkirk just go around and, and beat people. Um, so it invites a lot of comparisons to John Wick and is actually produced by one of the guys who's involved with John Wick. But I, I feel like he actually has more of a character art and it's a little bit funnier and lighter at times. So if you're in the mood for like big, dumb, violent fun, I would highly recommend the movie Nobody. Okay. I just, uh, to give a book recommendation, which will be quick, I, Paul, a book you recommended to me probably 10 years ago now, American Gods. I just reread that book recently. I think the TV show may or may not have been canceled, but the book is definitely worth a read if you're a fan of Neil Gaiman. It's a, I would say it's like a fantasy, but set in like a modern world. It's a, it's a good read. So definitely check that out. So lots of picks of the week this 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 time, Paul. It's been a while since we've done that. Yeah, it feels good. Um, but we should probably, yeah, I think it feels good. Maybe <laughs> we'll bring it back. We'll see. <laughs> People will start to complain. Too many picks of the week. <laughs> hey, audience. Are you like me? Have you been thinking about hiring great people lately? Well, let me tell you about our sponsor today, Indeed. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed. It's a job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all your hiring in one place, even the interviewing. So don't just hope that the perfect candidate is going to find you. Indeed has hiring tools that are going to help you cut through the noise so you can hire faster and smarter. Their instant match is going to give you a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment that you post a sponsored job. And with Indeed assessments, you can choose from 135 skill tests to help make sure you're finding applications from people with the skills that you need. So join the more than 3 million businesses that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get on to the main topic, which is pulmonary hypertension. And Deb, we've done this topic in the past before. So how do you want to start this? How how are we going to handle this? And do you want to set up the show a little bit for the audience? Yeah, I'd love to. So This is a pulmonary hypertension update. So we actually covered pulmonary hypertension in 2018. And a few things have changed since then about how we categorize pulmonary hypertension and how we define it. So just to start us off, can you give us a basic what is pulmonary hypertension and then maybe the changes in the definition since since our last episode? Sounds great. Um, So Pulmonary vascular like disease, like pulmonary hypertension, is when you have a person that has a mean uh, PA above 20 millimeters of mercury or a PVR of more than three wood units. That's the definition. In the past, it used to be a mean PA of more than 25, and that's how it has changed in between. They just changed the standard deviations of the definition itself. Is it important for us to really understand what a wood unit is or the, the, the PV, <laughs> what the PVR is? Because I, I mean, I read the definition. I'm just, I'm not quite sure that it, it means that much to me. How, how do you think about it? Is it, is that something or should we just go, I usually go by the mean pulmonary artery pressure, but what's this PVR wood unit stuff? 
the way I think about it is um, when you're transitioning the thought process is when you're talking about blood pressure, just systemic blood pressure, you talk about a map, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the same thing. Instead of a map of like 60, which is what your organs need to perfuse, you're going to talk about a mean PA of like 20, which is that mean pulmonary pressure that needs to be across the whole tube, right? Which starts by the pulmonary artery, goes into the pulmonary capillary bed, and ends up in the left atrium. So if you see it as a whole circuit, so that's your mean PA. So then you have the resistance, which is just pressure. And that pressure is how much tightness at the end of that system you're seeing, how much resistance you're seeing. So we use three uh, with units just as a, as a number and a cutoff. I don't know if that right. helps. Yeah, like a hose. That's how I explain that to my patients. Okay. So you put like your finger at the end. So that's what you feel. All so right. can you... Talk me through, because I, I feel like a lot of the, the classes of pulmonary hypertension are, are often discussed in terms of whether or not they're pre-capillary or post-capillary. Do you mind just sort of talking me through what that means? I feel like conceptually, I, I've, I've struggled with that a little bit. So like, how does that framework help and what does that mean exactly? So when you think about pulmonary hypertension, you have, if you imagine a whole circuit, you would have the pulmonary arteries, your step one, where your right ventricle is pushing blood, and that goes into the capillary bed. And on the end of that, you have the venial component, and that drains into the left atrium. So if you had to divide the circuit in different things, you will say anything that's before the capillaries is the precapillary bed. You're usually talking about like the pulmonary arteries itself. So that pressure that's idiopathic, that prior known patient as idiopathic, the pure pulmonary arterial hypertension. If you had to cut that in another percent is like, all the post-capillary, which is the venules that are draining into the left atrium. So all that resistance that can come resistance that can come from the left ventricle is pushing that resistance like back, backwards. So it's all like passive congestion. So that's why when people are doing this definition of pre or post-capillary or combined, is because you can have a little bit of like everything if you have combined, or just a piece if it's post-capillary coming from the left side, or if it's from the, your right ventricle or pulmonary arterial side, it's precapillary. And the wedge, which would be like a surrogate for what's happening on the left side across the septum, it's what's going to be elevated or not. So that's how you define each group. And depending on the theology that we can go over it a little bit, those definitions uh, vary because it's sometimes a little bit difficult to kind of give just one group to one patient. So that's why these broad definitions come into place. I think it's always hard to think about the five groups. To recap for the audience from last episode when we talked with Dr. Ryan about this, he, he thinks of it, he kind of simplified it that about 60% of pulmonary hypertension that you're going to see is going to be caused by left-sided heart disease of some sort. He talked about the company it keeps. Those are often your patients with obesity and high blood pressure and CKD and diabetes. A lot of the times, you know, you'll, you'll see it in those patients. Another 20% might have the chronic hypoxic lung disease. And then about 10% might have a combination of chronic hypoxic lung disease and left-sided heart disease. And he said that group there, the lung, the chronic hypoxic lung disease, and the people with left-sided heart disease, that makes up like 90% of the pulmonary hypertension. 
But this episode is going to focus more on the other 10% that we understand much less well. So, Estefania, can you tell us about the groups? Can you remind the audience about the groups? And, and then we'll start to get in eventually to the specifics of some of these groups that we wanted to pull out for tonight. Perfect. So group one is the pulmonary arterial hypertension. Group two is uh, the left-sided heart disease. Group three is those people that have like the lung diseases and hypoxia that you mentioned. Then group four are those that have occlusions in the pulmonary artery. And group five are like everyone else. Everyone yeah. else. Which I, I don't know that uh, audience, I can't promise you that we're all going to understand what group five is after tonight, but we'll understand the other groups a bit better. So uh, Deb, what's what's next on the agenda? I think we've kind of like, we talked about the new definitions. We talked a little bit about the pre-capillary, post-capillary and the classifications. So w- where do you want to start tonight? Uh, we could jump right into the case from Cashlack. Does that sound good? I or- I thought you might take us there. Let's do a case. <laughs> so... This is a case that came into Cashlack. Mr. Paul M. Belai. He is a 21-year-old college football player. So three years ago, after a long flight home from football camp, he was diagnosed and treated with DVT. He's had no other intervening medical problems. However, over the past six months, he's experienced increasing fatigue, shortness of breath, and occasional syncope. These symptoms have required him to stop playing football before the end of his season, and he is coming into your office today because his football coach made him, because his football coach wants him to be ready to play the next fall. Uh, In terms of his family history, his father and uncle both had ischemic heart events in their 60s, and then he has no other medical problems and is on no other medications. So I I think it's a very cool case because it's something that you are really going to see when you're training these patients. So when you're having people that have pulmonary hypertension, what you mentioned are usually the most common things. The shortness of breath is like 80% of the people have that. Fatigue, you'll see like in a third of them. And then the syncope part is what makes it very scary. And that's when, whenever you hear that story, you have to pause and try to figure out if this young kid is having something that could like really affect his viability. He can die. So the majority of these kids, uh, especially like at that young age, they will tell you, I feel good. There's nothing else bothering me. And you're like, what could a 21-year-old uh, half wrong. And that's where your like little alarm has to set up and kind of like try to look for clues for these type of disease, like pulmonary hypertension. Yeah. I feel like there would probably be delayed diagnosis. People would assume this guy has asthma or something like that. And probably not that he's out of shape because he's on a sports team, but it seems like a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension could be delayed in such a young person. I think for sure this patient would probably get an echo. I think just based on the syncope alone. Um, I'm not sure that I, well, I can just put myself in here and say I might not be a student enough to have gotten the past history of DVT or necessarily connect the pieces. I think just sort of based on this person with this sort of what sounds like exertional dyspnea in the young age, I'd probably get an echocardiogram. So I guess I'm wondering, is this typically how pulmonary hypertension presents? So I guess we're like, what are the typical presenting symptoms? Is it, is it often these younger patients or like what, what do you ordinarily see? Is this a prototypic case or is there a more typical presentation? So this is actually like a common presentation. You see a young kid that's having shortness of breath and syncope. And that's where you start thinking about these things. Once you rolled out the asthma, the obesity, their history of like maybe substance use, uh, dehydration, those are like the first things that you think of. And then you keep it in the back of your head. Like, 
why this young kid is having is passing out while exercising. So that should trigger a thought process leaning towards like cardiac, I would say. And from there, I think is where you stem your differential. Yeah. And I would classically think of like a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in a young person exercising who passes out and sports physicals. A lot of the times they're trying to get that sort of history from people to work them up further. Right. I guess, I guess that's my, and maybe I'm not asking the question, right? Like I feel like syncope as an initial presentation, I, I would think that there would be other symptoms leading up to the syncope first, I guess. And is that, am I misunderstanding some of the pathophysiology behind that? Like, I feel like the syncope seems like it would be sort of a later finding, or is that really just isolated syncope and, and progressive dysmenorrhea exertion are, are typically how these present? So it would be dyspnea first. And then when the patient has severe pulmonary hypertension is when you would see syncope. You wouldn't see syncope in a mild case of pulmonary hypertension. It has to be someone that has restrictive flow from the pulmonary arteries to like your coronaries and brain and because of the resistance in the lungs. And then that's why you syncopize. Or because you have an arrhythmic episode related to that hypoxia that leads to the syncope. One of the reasons I was so excited to pick this as a topic is that there was a study that was looking at the mean time to diagnosis of this type of pulmonary hypertension. It seems like from presentation to diagnosis, the, the average was around 14 months. So for a condition that's completely treatable, it's definitely worth having somewhere on our differential. Deb, which type of pulmonary hypertension was that study quoting? Was it type, was it group one? Yeah, that, that was looking specifically at CTEPH. Okay. So that is group four. Four. Everything that's CTEF, yeah. CTEF, is that how the cool kids say it? Mm -hmm. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so because I I think one of the valid things in this case, though, is that you do have someone that's young that has the history of DVT with the shortness of breath, and that's how you put it together. But most commonly what you have is someone in their 40s that has been fine until one year, two years ago. They start having progressive shortness of breath. And they come to your clinic to you try to pull data, pull data, do a good story of what their symptoms were. And then you find out that now they can't breathe. Now get, they get a short of breath from room to room. They're now syncopizing. It's kind of like more progressive over time. That's one of the things that you see. And then when you start looking and peeking into their risk factors, you find that they had a PE a year ago. And they were briefly on blood thinners. So those are the people that you wait like 14 months, like that said, and you say, hey, this clot may not resolve. And then you think of pulmonary hypertension. It's CTAF. We're sponsored today by the American College of Physicians. They're inviting you to attend a free webinar series that's called Telemedicine 201. It's a highly educational series that's beginning September 28th, and it's going to enhance your skills at telemedicine or virtual-based patient encounters. You'll learn from experts and experienced telemedicine educators throughout this series of four one-hour webinars. In their first episode, they're going to focus on video visits beyond the simple cases. And personally, I think this sounds super useful because let's be honest, I've been doing it for over a year, but... I'm not exactly sure if I'm doing things the best way. And they're going to demonstrate best practices for things like conducting a virtual head-to-toe physical exam. That sounds super useful. 
They'll discuss the strengths and limitations of telemedicine in managing patients, including those who are medically complex, which you know we all see as internists. And they're going to provide tips for leveraging tools that maximize the visit efficacy. Future episodes will focus on how you can engage the entire clinical team, leveraging telemedicine for chronic disease management, and how you can teach telemedicine to your trainees. So register today at acponline.org forward slash telemedicine 201 to reserve your place. That's acponline.org forward slash telemedicine 201. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, pathophysiology of CTEF? Because when I was reading about this, I was a little surprised to see that they think maybe it's not that the clot is always coming from a distal extremity and then embolizing, that maybe there's some disease within the pulmonary vascular bed itself or the clot is forming de novo in there. Am I misunderstanding that or is that part of what people think happens from this? Because there, sometimes there's not a history of DVTPE in these patients. That's correct. Like the majority of them do not have the history, but the problem is that no one really knows why is it formed. Yeah. Like we assume that it comes from there, but there's like some post-mortem studies that have looked at biopsies and some of them think that there's like in situ changes. And what happens on these lungs is that they kind of create the same look that a pulmonary arterial hypertension patient would like you would see the same cut. So that's why you're talking about in situ thrombosis and like these other pulmonary vascular changes at the micro level. So I'd like to talk about kind of what are some of the other things in the patient history that we should investigate? So I gave you kind of a bare bones, but what are the other questions I should be asking? So when you get these patients with shortness of breath, I think it's important to just get a sense of when did it start if it's getting worse over time, is it uh, at rest or is it with exertion? You try to take out pieces like, are you wheezing? Are you having dry cough? Because you want to make sure that you're not missing other common causes of shortness of breath. And then you start to think about heart failure kind of symptoms. Are they having orthopnea, bendopnea, swelling in the legs? What is it that's making them feel so short of breath? Those are like the basic things when they come to clinic that I try to think about in terms of the shortness of breath itself, just to get a very good history to try to associate it with either cardiac, pulmonary, sometimes GI, if they're having like GERD and so on. Can you remind the audience what sort of things in the history, because I think for this patient specifically, maybe we should still be thinking about, could they have like a group one pulmonary hypertension? Can you talk about what things are associated with that that you would think of or ask about? So when I meet these patients, I usually ask about, have you had any rashes, any joint pain? Does like your fingers get blue? Like trying to figure out if they have like any Raynaud's. Are you getting like foot stuck? Like thinking of like crest kind of symptoms. Do you have any chance of having like HIV, hepatitis C, or any other type of hepatitis? So I'm always going through these like mental lists of anything that could be kind of group one. And then one of the important hints is that you want to ask about that family history. Like, does anyone at home have any autoimmune disorders, any history of like lung transplant, any history of heart failure, something like that. 
because those are usually the clues. It's all about in these cases of getting like a good history at the end, really. Mm-hmm. Paul, should we ask about the physical exam? Is, is that? <laughs> yeah, I I would love to hear about the physical examination. Is there is there anything particularly localizing? Or actually, I guess a better question to ask is when you're approaching a patient like this where you suspect ulnar hypertension, what what things are you looking for on physical examination? What would really point you hard in that direction? I love physical examining them. It's so cool. So the first thing is usually uh, if they are decompensated, they tend to be a little bit tachycardic. They would have an S1 that's normal, but the S2 is usually like more accentuated, like a little bit more intense. So that speaks to that P2, the pulmonic valve component that needs the resistance. Then if they have um, some pressure building, you can hear like the tricuspid regurgitation murmur, that systolic murmur in the left personal border. And the, my favorite is just because I did heart failure is the JVP. <laughs> so well, I'll sure. spend hours in that JVP. Uh, turtlenecks are the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> uh, but um, in, in all honesty, it's basically measuring that jugular uh, venous pulse pressure, trying to see if there's a large V wave. Sometimes you ask them to take a deep breath and if it like drops down that JVP, you think of like Cosmel sign, which would hint like to RV failure and, and so on, like S3s or extremity edema. It's very, very interesting. And the rashes and the fingers, those are your biggest keys for like what you were asking before, because sometimes the physical exam hints to other etiologies of pulmonary hypertension. This one time I had this patient that had telangiectasias, and that was the hint for portal pulmonary hypertension. That is very cool. That's a very cool diagnosis. In the first office visit with you, I imagine probably these patients will come with a chest x-ray, an EKG, and an echocardiogram. What other testing do you think someone should send before they get to you? or and, and if it hasn't been done, what would you send on that first visit? For any like pH screening, those are basically like the three things that we order. Then if I'm talking about blood work, just come on CBC because I'm looking and thinking about hemoglobin that can go down, like anemia that could cause like shortness of breath. I also look at the platelets because they have hypercoagulable states, the majority of them, or a percentage of them, I should say. And then also LFTs. I usually send for TSH. It's very common to see people that have pulmonary hypertension associated with hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism. It's like 20% actually of your patients. And you just treat that and you can actually reverse the pulmonary hypertension. And it's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then other things are like the hepatitis panel. ANA is like a blanket test. I know it's very difficult and rheumatologists do not like it when you order it without <laughs> knowing, but it's something that we do in part as part of the screening. And the PQ scan would be what it's recommended when you're trying to rule out causes of CTAF. And that's how we use it like as a map for everything else that comes from there. Do you order the overnight oximetry and pulmonary function tests as well on all your patients? Is that more of like a case-by-case? So if they're telling me that they have dyspnea and the the, the presentation is dyspnea, I will usually take uh, the PFTs mm-hmm. because the majority of these patients all have like a little bit of like restrictive lung disease, uh, especially our pulmonary hypertension group one. 
And some of them have obstructive lung disease. So you want to take that out of the equation uh, when you're trying to get to the thorough like uh, answers of what is it that's causing you to be blue or not breathe. For this guy here, let's let's take it back to the case. So we've we've talked a bunch. So we have Mr. Paul Emboli. He's a 21-year-old guy. He's a football player. He's been having shortness of breath and syncope. He's got a little bit of what sounds like a suspicious family history. And we've ordered the labs that you talked about there. Like we've taken a history. We don't really think he has a rheumatologic disease. Um, he he doesn't have HIV. And doesn't seem like, based on his imaging, he has like interstitial lung disease and he's not taking like any amphetamines or diet pills, so to speak. So we're not really finding anything else other than this history of prior pulmonary embolism. Can you talk a little bit about the VQ scan? Because I think probably most of the audience would think of VQ scans as like not as helpful as a CT pulmonary angiogram uh, in their day-to-day practice. But why why do we like it so much for someone like this guy? So if um, that is true, and I think, yeah, the beauty of the VQ scan is that it's your gold standard when you're trying to rule out causes of like CTAF. When you're trying to understand a little bit more the um, anatomic part of the lungs or just trying to see if there's an acute PE, is usually something that you, you find it more useful, to be completely honest. When we are evaluating patients for CTAP, though, we do use the CTPA. But I think as a blanket test, VQ scan will have a very strong possibility, like uh, sensitivity and specificity for like CTAF, if that's what you're thinking. Yeah, from when I was reading, the negative predictive value approaches 100%. Is that right? So yep. if it's a normal perfusion on the VQ scan, then CTEF is very, very unlikely? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. The last time we talked about this with Dr. Ryan, I'm not sure if you remember this, Paul, but I think he told us that not every center is as as useful reading them and they might even repeat them when he when they get to the center. Is that does that sound right? That sounds familiar, yeah. So at your institution, do you have specific people that read these? I I know you're at a lung center, so there's a lot of probably probably used to this diagnosis. But it it sounded like if you got it somewhere where they're not used to looking at VQ scans, then it might not be as reliable. And maybe I'm not sure if you repeat it when patients come to you. So out of consciousness for healthcare cost and because of the patient is receiving radiation. Sure. We try to obtain the raw images, no matter what the read is. You will see it very frequently called like low probability because it's low or high probability for B. And sometimes it gets missed, unfortunately. Um, I'd love to hear what are some of the, so I guess what are some of the expected findings on VQ scan? Like what would it look like? So when you're having like a positive VQ scan, what you see is a ventilation part, which assesses how the lung is like the lung parenchyma is working. And then you have a perfusion part where the pulmonary vasculature is having the feeling like perfusion defects, if anything. What you would see is wedge-like defects, and you will see it by regions wherever the clot is. And usually, if you don't have parenchymal lung disease but only pulmonary vascular obstruction, you'll see an unmatched defect. 
So that's how you see it called. That's basically like defining. It's interesting because with COVID, we don't receive any ventilation scans anymore. So sometimes you can have like a very elevated hemidiaphragm and that will give you like a perfusion defect, but it's not. It's just an elevated hemidiaphragm that's causing a perfusion defect, quote unquote. So you have to eventually like see the images and compare with your chest x-ray, CT and such. So tell us, how might it go for a patient like this if he had a VQ scan and what what would be the next steps for him in terms of diagnosis and, and then uh, treatment if we're, if we're at that point? So if we had a VQ scan that was positive, we'll probably get a CT with contrast and that to characterize what we're seeing, just to make sure that we're having matching data. And then from there, we'll probably obtain, I assume you already have an echocardiogram, so we'll get a right heart cath to actually get the measurements in the heart to see if there's any degree of pulmonary hypertension in there. I love to back up and kind of define we. So we try to target kind of general internists. So I think a really good question would be, at what point would you try to refer this patient to a specialized center? And who would get this referral? So usually uh, when you have someone that has uh, shortness of breath, you have a positive VQ scan, ideally you should refer them at that point for a cardiology or pulmonology evaluation, depending on the center where you are. The pulmonary hypertension expertise center may vary between both specialties. And then from there, they should refer the patient for the additional testing that I mentioned, such as like right heart cath, uh, and VQ scan, and so on. And I mean, and I'm sorry to go out of order, and I may have missed a step here um, just due to connectivity issues. But can I ask you to talk about the role of the echocardiogram? The way I would Im- imagine this sort of going down is you see this patient would probably lead with the echo, see probably suggestion of pulmonary hypertension on that, and then make the referral, and then all this advanced imaging would kind of happen through a pulmonary hypertension specialist, which is how I would picture this kind of going down, but maybe I'm thinking about it wrong, and maybe a bolder primary care doctor would even get the VQ scan and advance that referral. But I guess to go back to make it an easy question to answer, can you just talk about the role of echocardiography in diagnosing pulmonary hypertension while we're talking about sort of diagnostic modalities? Yeah, with um, that's a great question. So with any patient that you have pulmonary hypertension or you're suspecting pulmonary hypertension, if you send the patient and they find that there's uh, an echocardiogram with suggestive of pulmonary artery pressures that are elevated or a right ventricle that's enlarged or dysfunctional, those are keys that hint whoever placed the order for the echo to suggest that there's pulmonary arterial hypertension. And then from there, you can refer that to a specialist so they can continue the workup. That question is very tricky because it depends a lot on the expertise, local expertise that you have. And I feel that the guidelines are really not very specific on when and how to refer and who to refer. They kind of like give you like an algorithm, but it doesn't stop, like tells you where do the internal medicine dog hands off the baton. That's how I feel. I think if if you think you have somebody, you know, that isn't in the 90% group where they have chronic hypoxic lung disease or left-sided heart disease, and you think someone has one of the other groups, like either one of the group one, pulmonary arterial hypertension, or group four, CTEF, or group five, you don't know, you know, the one that I don't understand, then those are people that I would certainly refer. 
And I think we're capable of getting a lot of this history, Paul. And depending on whether or not I suspect a rheumatologic disease, I may order some of these basic labs and some of the viral screening stuff, depending on the history. But if I suspect it's not in the normal like flavor of pulmonary hypertension that I'm used to seeing, which is group two and three, then I, I would pretty much refer. Paul, do you have a different practice? Oh, no, no, God, no. If I suspect actually really any form of pulmonary hypertension, they're off to a specialist. I'm not going to try to manage any of that stuff on my own. I, I agree with you, you know, because I get screening ANAs on all of my patients um, just, <laughs> cool. just to get a base. That's just good so primary care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then if it lines up with the CT angiogram that I get for anyone who just coughs funny, then then I know and can send them <laughs> off. But no, like I, for sure, I, I guess what I'm getting at is I, you know, I think my concern is I could see this being a misdiagnosis or a late diagnosis for someone who doesn't quite recognize some of the cardinal features or maybe doesn't feel comfortable with some of the the more advanced diagnostics in terms of the imaging. Like, you know, it's how, how often do you pull the trigger on a VQ scan in the primary care setting is, is not something that you do very often. So I'm just trying yeah. to think through for our, our primary outpatient friends how to think about this and how best to serve the patients without missing anything. And we should remind the audience that CTEF is, is a rare there diagnosis, correct? So... I, I mean, I can't, I, I don't even know that I've ever uh, seen a case. I certainly haven't diagnosed a case myself. Estefania, how do you think about this? I don't know if you have stats like for what percentage of population has it or something that would even be meaningful, but it seems like it's a pretty rare thing. It is. So the way I explain it to my patients, because they always, when they come to clinic, they're like, why me? Why me? So the way I explain it is you have an acute P at one point in your life and about... 90% of those people will resolve that P, acute P, with anticoagulation. Then you have these little tiny 10% of which some of them will have just residual clot, but they won't progress to pulmonary hypertension itself. And you are unfortunately on that less than 3 to 5% depending on the data. The problem is that because we this diagnose goes under the radar, we don't actually have actual statistics of the prevalence or the incidence of uh, CTAF because we don't go around testing everyone that had a P once upon a time because yeah. it's not routine. Well, and how do you talk to them about the treatment? What might that sound like? Let's take it back to our patient, Mr. Belay here and tell him like we've, we've made the diagnosis. We're pretty sure this is CTAF. How would you talk to him about what the treatment might look like and what the, what the options are? So the beautiful thing about CTAF is that pulmonary endarterectomy, which would be the surgery, is the only form of therapy that makes the disease curable. So you tell them that you have the option of having surgery. It's a big undertake because we're talking about heart and lung surgery, but it's something that will cure you, right? And then after that, you have other therapies, which are medications. Rio CWAT is one of the medications that's approved at the moment for that. And then there's other investigational things that can happen down the line, which include balloon pulmonary angioplasty, or if the disease is not like you can refer actually the patient for a lung transplantation if it goes that way. So that's kind of the conversation. And this is essentially the, the surgery is, is an open heart surgery. They're on cardiopulmonary bypass. There's, I think, cooling of like the heart and the head and and the and the head and the yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> it's it, audience you should we could link to the paper that uh Do, Dr. Gorth pulled out uh for our pre-reading for Paul and I but it was very yeah it sounds pretty crazy 
It is like crazy. I thought they just went in there and just like sucked the clot yes. out and they're just like, let's oh. call it a day. But they're like dissecting into the, like the pulmonary arteries. It's it's a it's crazy. Yeah, God bless you for saying that because I I had the same impression. Like, yeah, I thought just a couple snip snip, and then you get the clot, and then the patient feels better. I did not realize like it was quite so extensive as cracking over the chest and like they're on bypass and they're freezing the head and like it's a whole. And while you're in there, if you want to do a cabbage while you're warming them back up, you kind of like, oh my god, like it's just so it's it's not nothing. Like it's it's definitive treatment, but holy smokes, it is it is. So that's why there's not a lot of places that do it. That's why it has to be referred to an expert center for that. And um, it's a big undertake. And when you're trying to see who is a candidate, you may have operable disease, but you may not be a surgical candidate. If you have too many comorbidities, that may not be the right choice for you. And what about the medicine you mentioned? It, how, how well does that work? And is it is it something that provides just symptom relief for patients? Is there a mortality benefit if they if they take the medication? So there's symptom relief, there's hospitalization reduction, there's no mortality benefit. What you see is an improvement in hemodynamics. The balloon uh, pulmonary angioplasty that you mentioned, is that still experimental? And do we have data on hard outcomes for that as far as like symptoms and hospitalizations? No, nothing yet. Yeah, you're just like, audience, she was... She was like, I just no. wish we had a screen cap of that face. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you dear sweet man, you poor stupid child. No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. What I said was, uh, no, it's something that we do. There's a lot of interest in the, in the area. Um, it's something that people are looking into. Uh, we still have to find like randomized controlled trials on it. It's sure. a lot of observational data. I'm sure it's hard to enroll if it's it's such a rare condition and to find people that are candidates and have this rare condition, I'm sure it's it's tough. But for a guy like this, I mean, he's a 21-year-old college football player. He may, may be someone that would undergo a surgery or, or transplant, as you said. And, and then from what I was reading, sometimes people, even if they get surgery, but they still have symptoms, they may also get the medication or even maybe angioplasty if there's still residual stuff that they think could be intervened upon? That is true. So that's something that uh, we discuss ahead of time. If the patient has a lot of disease close to the heart, which is what we call proximal, is something that the surgeon is going to be able to snare out, basically, and like remove. When the disease is very distal and the vessels get very small, they may not be able to get to those distal planes, so they'll benefit of a combination of medical therapy or the balloon pulmonary angioplasty. Can we talk a little bit about, and I don't believe these medications are part of it, and you didn't mention that, but they're, they're for the pulmonary arterial hypertension, there's a bunch of different meds. Are those ever used experimentally or have they been tried in CTEF or can you speak to that a little bit? And how, how familiar do you think the audience needs to be with, with those medications? So for CTEF specifically, right now it's a real CWAT, the one that it's a, like FDA approved. Other medications have been tried in different clinical trials, but they have not met uh, hard outcomes. There's a lot of ongoing enrolling trials that will try to address that in the next couple of years, three to five years, hopefully. And uh, for the audience, I think 
it's important to know like the medications itself more than for prescribing for like the side effects if you have these patients in your primary care like you are the the PCP just to know what is it that the the patients can complain because the side effects can be ruthless at times can you talk about what are some of the classes and and the side effects if you could kind of run through for each class and which side effects we should look out for okay so the easiest I'm going to go from easiest tolerable to worse. I cannot handle. Please stop. <laughs> okay. So phosphodiesterase, type 5 inhibitors like uh, sildenafil and tadalafil are like the first group. It's like the Viagra, basically. And what patients usually complain of is headaches. So you actually medicate them with Tylenol as long as it's safe. And those are like the basic things uh, that we do and we tell the patients. Some of them can have hypotension when they take the medication. So we try to uh, counsel them of not taking the medications with other blood pressure medications because it really can plummet down. The most important thing is to tell them not to take these medications with nitrates like isotorbate or isosorbide, those type of things, because both of them act in the same pathway. Then the second medication that is kind of tolerable, it's the endothelin receptor antagonists. So all of them have entin in the name. So that's how I remember it. Ambrisentin, bosentin, masitentin. And they sound funny, but those are, those are it. Uh, all of them have liver toxicity. So you kind of have to monitor ASTs, ALTs, and we do it like every three months or so. They have a lot of like GI side effects like nausea, diarrhea, people swell up. So those are the things that are common that you'll see. Then less is it could be the prostacyclin analogs. And those are the ones that can be IV, PO, or inhaled, sometimes subcutaneous as well. Those are kind of like our bigger guns. Epoprosternol is the only one of all these meds that I'm talking about that have shown mortality benefit. And those cause the same thing that I've mentioned from all the others. But in addition to that, it can cause local erythema and induration. And sometimes if they're subcutaneous, people, they look like they have a cellulitis, but it's just like induration from the site where they're injecting. I'm saying all the bad things, but they're very good drugs. (laughs) Great meds. And then last but not least, you have two, the prostacycline IP receptor agonist, Selexipac. And the other one is RioCWAT, which is the one that we talked about for uh, CTAP specifically. That's the guanylate cyclase stimulator. And that is the same as uh, nitrates. You cannot combine them because they act on the same pathway. A few weeks ago, we had a patient that went home, took the RioCWAT on top of her isordial and ended up in an ICU with profound hypotension because of that, because you cannot use both at the same time. So those are the medications. They're very good in terms of what they do for the pulmonary hypertension, but they do come with side effects. And specifically pulmonary arterial hypertension, for the, except for the Rio Ciguat, which you mentioned, that one specifically is for CTEF, but the rest of these were for pulmonary arterial hypertension are they used just for the group one or this this group five, like multifactorial? Is it like case by case for people in that group? 
Have you ever met anyone in that group, Paul? I don't. I don't think I ever have. I don't know. <laughs> I, well, not that has been declared that I'm. You know. Yeah. I'm sure they exist, but I, I've not made the diagnosis. Estefania, so these meds, uh, they these are for group group one mostly. Yes, they are for approved for group one. Then for the other groups, that's when you try to go into the phenotypes, risk assessments, and that's where, like I would suggest, like referral to expert centers so they can characterize the patient and kind of like tailor therapy. But it would yeah. be um, just like expert opinion. There's no like FDA approved. For group five, the the other the five. other category, <laughs> the, the everything two. else. <laughs> Yeah. Or three. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. three three may change, but um the other ones, yes. I see. And I guess we're in a rapid fire question round now. The the uh, calcium channel blockers, people shouldn't just throw those at like everybody with pulmonary hypertension, right? So there's it used to be this acute vasoreactivity testing that you have mm-hmm. some people that respond to it, some people that don't. It doesn't mean that you're gonna respond. It's not part of the guidelines, but people do it. They do. This is a cath lab test where they test for vasoreactivity and they're giving calcium channel blockers in a cath lab. So you give like adenosine in the cath lab, a very high doses. And basically some people will have an improvement in the resistance and an improvement in the cardiac output. So those are the calcium channel blocker responders. It's a very, very tiny, tiny, tiny group. So it's like an orphan inside the orphan, inside the orphan disease. (laughs) And they respond. (laughs) Okay. But it's got to be super satisfying when you finally find that one patient. Like that has to be like finding a unicorn. That's, yeah, it's probably, yes. Okay. So it's not that the calcium channel blockers can be, are like contraindicated necessarily for, for anybody with pulmonary hypertension. It's just that like, you're saying the vasoreactivity test is no longer really done routinely. It's not part of the guideline recommendations. No, it is done routinely, but like the calcium channel blockers is for that specific group that responds. Okay. Not for everyone that has pulmonary hypertension. Got it. But if you need it for hypertension control in, in some patients, then that's a different story. We're just talking about if you're specifically using it for the pulmonary arterial hypertension, that's a very specific group. Exactly. Yeah. And we have more potent vasodilators than the calcium channel blocker itself. So the practice is to include the other therapies in people that have DAH. If Deb is taking care of patients, she's in the ICU and someone comes in super sick, hypotensive, they have pulmonary arterial hypertension, they're on like some prostacyclins. Should she stop them because they're hypotensive? Please don't stop them. <laughs> <laughs> Call we just had to say it again. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you know, it seems so can you so they don't they lower blood pressure in the lungs, but you're saying they're they're not responsible for this person's hypotension? So they could, definitely, because some of them you have a systemic effect. But mm-hmm. if you are so sick that you need a prostacycline, it means that you are probably in right-sided heart failure and severe pulmonary hypertension, and stopping your medications right away can cause rebound hypertension, and it can be fatal. Yeah. So like their pulmonary blood flow, uh, their blood flow across the pulmonary arteries could just stop. <laughs> yeah. It's not good. <laughs> Yikes. So we're not going to do that, right? 
Yes, okay. please don't do that. That's a good tip. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I think the audience, maybe they've heard that before, but I, I feel like it is a public service announcement uh, for you to say that on, on air for everybody. All right. Well, this is, this has all been extraordinarily helpful. I do require closure for poor Mr. Bali, our 21-year-old. So we've, we've talked about the diagnosis and potential management for him. But Dr. Gorth, don't leave me hanging. What, what happened with our patient? Please tell me that he's playing football after his open heart surgery, question mark. <laughs> His head warmed up after that. <laughs> oh, God. I, um, he did not get back on the football field, but he was caught by his PCP, referred to an expert center, and did undergo surgery. So he is walking around, not passing out, but walking around not on a, not on a football field. Right, he focused on his studies, Paul, and now he's going to become a chemical engineer or something. <laughs> or a heart failure cardiologist there you go there you go <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a very interesting case and I'm sorry that he's not playing anymore that's very sad but what we usually like to do with these patients is try to get them to their normal routine I think the take home from points are like when you're seeing patients with dizzy and fatigue uh, syncope and you are thinking that they have a prior history of thromboembolic disease or any hypercoagulable state, those are people that you want to escalate their care and try to refer them to an expert center because there may be an underlying process that actually has a cure and you can do them well by escalating care. All right. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There we go. That was your time to shine. You <laughs> missed opportunity. <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Deb, I thought you were just, I thought you were didn't want to I, do it. So uh, I'm, I'm anti-yummy, so it's really hard to be thrust into this yummy role. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Champing uh, at the bit, but yeah, it's a shame. Well, we're committed to providing the audience with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want their feedback. So they should subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts. They can email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Deb Gorth, and to our wonderful guest, Dr. Estefania Oliveros, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram. Tima Karganov is on the website. Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. A reminder to the audience that they can get CME credit for free through VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And with all of that, everybody, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Deb Gorth. And I'm... Um... You said it. I don't know why we included our guest in this. I know, which we never do, but I'm glad that you're there. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.